there's a, a saying in, in church circles <clears throat> that goes something like, it's, like this. It says, the last seven words of a dying church are, we never did it that way before. And there are many churches out there that are dying for that very reason. They've become entangled in tradition for tradition's sake rather than for glorifying God. Now, tradition in of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, our lives and our societies are kind of geared around traditions. Families have precious traditions themselves, don't they? That they um, transfer to their next generation. For example, when I, when I was a kid growing up, um, my family, like any other family, had its traditions. And one of the things that we did on Christmas morning was my brother's sister and myself, we would open our stockings together, which had magically appeared on our beds during the night. And we'd wake up early and we'd hear that rattling at the bottom of the bed and we'd know that Father Christmas had been. And I, I was usually the first up because I was the youngest and I'd wake my sister up and my brother and we'd all come into one bedroom together and we would open our stockings full of little goodies. And then we'd go in and wake my mum and dad up and my dad... We'd all go down the stairs, and my dad would painfully, slowly have to make himself a cup of tea first. You know, so we're just watching, waiting for the water to boil. And then he goes in, he would pop his head into the living room where all the presents were, and every year would say the same thing, no, he's not been. By which time we're bursting out of our pajamas with excitement, and we'd burst into the living room, and sure enough, there were the presents. And it was a tradition we did every year. And we knew my dad was going to say the same thing. And he was going to take forever to make his cup of tea. But we loved it. Another tradition we had was on, on New Year's Day, we would go out as a family for a meal. And that was a big deal for us because uh, we didn't have a ton of money growing up. And my parents, they would save up for this day so that we could go out as a family and start the year as a family together with a meal these were traditions we had in our family, and I'm sure you all have your own traditions that you grew up with or that you, you try to establish with your own families. And of course, nations and societies have traditions as well, don't they? One of my favorite American traditions is, is the celebration of Thanksgiving. It's, it's one I would like to uh, import to the UK if I ever was, went back there. It's, I mean, what's not to love about that holiday? Eating and drinking as much as you can and watching Christmas movies. and That's a good time, right? But it's, it's a good tradition. So traditions in of themselves, they're not bad things. Often they can be good things. They only become a bad thing if they draw us away from God. Right? And if a tradition replaces a law or a command or supersedes scripture, then ultimately it's a hollow tradition and we need to look at why we're doing that, and perhaps we need to ditch it, especially if it's counter to the Lord. So that's what we find here this morning in the first part of this, of this scripture here, where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And it begins with a delegation of Pharisees have, have come from Jerusalem. So, you know, Jesus is creating some ripples. And he'd had local scribes and Pharisees checking him out before, saying, who is this man who's working these miracles? But now there's a delegation come from Jerusalem. These, these are the bigwigs. 
Okay, they want to see what's going on. And of course, in typical fashion, the Pharisees haven't come with an open heart. They've come with the mindset of wanting to, to criticize and find fault with Jesus because they don't like what they're hearing. He's stirring things up. He's going against tradition. And they don't like that. So what they do is they're quite stuck. They attack Jesus by way of his disciples. And they accuse them of not washing their hands before eating. They say to Jesus, why, why are they not doing this? And, you know, chapters 3 to 4 of the passage, you notice there's some parentheses where Mark, the author of the gospel, is explaining why they do these things. And there's, there's an interesting little indicator for us there who Mark's audience is. Okay, if this was a Jew reading this in the Hebrew tradition, they wouldn't need an explanation of why all this goes on. But what Mark's showing is, is that actually he's geared, his audience that he's geared towards is non-Jewish folks, Gentiles, Roman and Greek Gentiles probably most likely. But he's, that's who he's trying to target with this gospel of Jesus. And so he explains a little bit about that. But the crux of this section is in verse 5, where the, uh, the Pharisees say, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? That's very important there. Why don't they live according to the tradition of the elders? Notice they aren't saying, why aren't your disciples following the laws and commands of God? No, they're saying, why are you not upholding these traditions, the sayings of the elders? And so the tradition of the elders were rabbinic oral tradition that had emerged over the years. And basically they were simply man-made rules that weren't based on scripture or the Torah, as they called it. The Torah is the law. It's the first five books of our Bible, of the Old Testament. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books made up the Jewish law, the Torah. They're also known as the the five books of Moses. But this wasn't based on that. In fact, the only hand-washing required in the Old Testament for purposes of ritual purity was for the priests before they offered a sacrifice. So you weren't required to wash your hands before eating. The Pharisees had just decided, you know what, we're just going to make this rule up and we're going to add on a ton of rules to make everything really complicated. And so what they'd done essentially is, the Pharisees, they drifted into legalism. Okay? Legalism. And legalism is something that we in the church have to be very, very careful about. There are actually kind of two extremes that a church can drift into, and they're both dangerous. One is legalism, which basically says, okay, we're going to create all these rules, and if you don't adhere to all these rules, or if you break one of them, then you're in trouble, and you're not a real Christian, and you don't love the Lord. It's all about fulfilling all these rules to gain favor with God. That's a dangerous theology, and is not godly theology or scriptural theology. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what's become known as hypergrace. Hypergrace. And this really is a, a theology that says our God is so loving and so full of grace that it doesn't really matter what you do or how you live your lives because, hey, we're covered with grace and the Lord will forgive you. So just do what you want with your lives. It doesn't really matter because God is a God of grace. Yes, he is a God of grace, but he's also a God of transformation. He doesn't want you to remain where you are. That is not growing. That's becoming stagnant. And you know, it's interesting that there are a lot of churches that describe themselves as this phrase, open and affirming. 
And it's, it's always been an interesting phrase to me because I thoroughly believe that every church out there should be open. We should be open to anybody and everyone who wants to come to church, regardless of their political views, their sexual orientation, whatever it is, they should be welcome by the church. But I don't think the church should be, be about affirming everything about us. We are all sinful people in one way or another. We all have our struggles, whatever it may be. And the church isn't called to affirm these things. It's called to challenge them, to root them out in our lives so that we can grow. We as Christians, we're called to a life of confession, repentance. That's how you grow. If you stay where you are in your faith, you will never grow and become closer to God. So, there's those dangers of going to legalism or towards hyper-grace. But Jesus, with the Pharisees, he's never one to mince his words. And he calls them out as hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 and says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And their teachings are but rules taught by men. Listen to that. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You ever been in that place? I know I have. Where I'm going through the motions and I'm saying the right words, right? I'm, I'm trying to give thanks to God and praise Him, but my heart's nowhere near Him. Because essentially I've, I've distanced myself from God because of what's going on in my life. And essentially my worship is in vain because it's not really coming from the heart. Well, why is that worship in vain? Jesus gives the answer in verse 8. He says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So you see what happens? When we, when, it's kind of what happens is we lose our way and we start introducing our own um, kind of laws and rules and we get away from the word of God. And what Jesus is telling us there is that when we do that, we're not really worshipping him anymore. We're worshipping our, our own rules and traditions. So Jesus, he calls them hypocrites. And you know what's very interesting here? The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word which means play actor. Isn't that fascinating? So the word hypocrite essentially means it's someone who's acting or pretending to be something they're not. A hypocrite is an actor. So next time, when you're watching the, uh, the Oscars or the Golden Globes, and you sat in your comfy recliner, you can quite self-satisfied look at the actors and actresses dressed up in their bling and walking down the red carpet, and you can actually say, look at that bunch of hypocrites. Because <laughs> that's what the word, mean, the root meaning comes. Okay, a play actor. So essentially, when he says you hypocrites, he's saying, he's saying to the Pharisees, you're playing at worshipping God. You're giving God lip service, but your hearts are nowhere near him. They are worshipping God in vain. So to nail home this point of hypocrisy, what Jesus does is, he uses a real life example of what the Pharisees are doing right there and then, of how they're using their tradition to supersede the word of God. And what he does is, um, he, he gets very sarcastic with them. And you know, as a Brit, I love sarcasm. 
Okay, it's, it's kind of, it's just in us. You know, it's a bit like, you know, Americans and excessive use of napkins. It's just kind of something you've got to have, right? You know, it's one of the first things that struck me when I moved here was like, they use a lot of napkins here. You know, you get a meal, it's like, huge wad of napkins, you know, with a little bit of ketchup there. And it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a fear. That must be a word for a fear of not having enough napkins. Napkinophobia or something. But you just got to, you know, Brits, we need a little bit of sarcasm. You, you guys need, need your napkins and, and also a lot of ice. Um, but he gets very sarcastic with them. And he says, um, verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So you have a fine way. One translation says this, you splendidly ignore the commands of God. It's like, oh, Jesus, I love you. It's just, I feel if I'd known Jesus in the flesh, in the person when he walked the earth, we'd have got on so well. We just, the back and forth would have been great. But this is ironic for Jesus and very sarcastic because the Pharisees, remember, the Pharisees were the masters and experts of the law. Right? These guys knew scripture inside out. You ever met somebody who knows scripture inside out and they can quote passages back and forth and you're kind of like, wow, that's amazing. They know the scriptures really well. Well, they ain't got nothing on the Pharisees. They memorize scripture and they could quote it back to you all the time. So it's so ironic that Jesus is throwing it right back at them. And he's saying, what he does, Jesus, he, he, he highlights the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments that were handed down to Moses. And the fifth commandment is, honor your mother and your father. And Jesus says, look at what you're doing. You're making a man-made tradition known as Corban. All right, so this thing called Corban was a word that means a, a gift devoted or dedicated to God. And you're using it as an excuse to not provide for your parents. So what people were doing is, they had financial means and property and all this, and instead of taking care of their parents, they were saying, no, 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 this is Corbin. I'm dedicating it to the Lord, so sorry guys, I can't help you out. Now the interesting thing is, when they did this, this didn't mean that they had to hand their property or their money over right there and then. No, they could hang on to it to the rest of their life, and use it and reap the benefits of it and the interest and all that, before it would be turned over. So they were neglecting their parents for financial means. And Jesus points out, this is man-made tradition stumping the law and the word of God. You hypocrites. You people who proclaim to be the, the guardians of the word of God. It causes us to pause for a moment, doesn't it, and think about what are, what are some of the, the man-made uh, traditions that we might have let take precedence over God? And God's word in our own lives? Do we have areas where we feel something we have decided is important but perhaps contradicts scripture is more important? So Jesus uses man-made traditions to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, okay? But actually, he's, he's trying to get to a deeper issue. And essentially, it's that the Pharisees had their theology backwards. They had their theology backwards. And sometimes we do the same thing. We get our theology backwards. You see, they thought, the Pharisees thought, that sin and impurity came from outside. From outside of themselves. Almost like, um, you know, you could catch a cold or, or get the flu. It was the idea that you, you were defiled 
by touching or being around something that was impure. So, you know, don't don't shake their hand. You just caught adultery. Oh, man. No, 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 don't don't hug me. Oh, no, you just caught murder. That's a bad one. That's really hard to treat. Oh, no. They had this idea that it came from outside, but actually Jesus argues the opposite. This is why I say their theology was backwards. And in fact, it's such an important point that what does Jesus do? He gets the larger crowd, all right? He'd been dealing with the Pharisees. Now he says, hey, folks, listen up, listen up. He says, listen to me and understand this. You know when Jesus says that, listen to me and understand this, that he's saying, he's going to say something that's very important. And this is what he says. He says, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. That's pretty profound. Jesus is saying it's not the breaking of traditions. It's not the forgetting to wash your hands before you eat or forgetting to take a bath or forgetting to to sit and stand and bow and genuflex at the right time. That's not what makes you unclean. It's the stuff that comes out of your heart. What's in here? And the heart, biblically speaking, is the center of the human personality, the will, the mind, the emotions. That's what... Most of the time, it means when we read the word heart in the Bible. It's not just your physical heart. It's more a general word for who you are as a person. And in fact, Jesus lays it out further. We didn't read this in our scripture reading this morning, but further down the same chapter 7 of Mark, in verses 20 to 23, Jesus elaborates. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's quite a list, isn't it? That is quite a list. And I'm sure all of us in this room could check off a few of those, right? You know, perhaps all of them. (laughs) But certainly a few. I know I could. So Jesus is saying what really makes one unclean comes from within, from out of our hearts and our will, what we think, what we say, what we desire, what we do. Um, When I was a kid growing up, I had a a pretty overactive imagination. In fact, I still do really. I, I get some crazy thoughts and scenarios running through my head a lot of the time. And so much so that when I was a kid, my friends, one of the nicknames they had for me was Doeth. They would call me Doeth. And the reason for that was because I was always saying, what would you do if? Right? And just goofy, silly things would come out. What would you do if your leg fell off right now? What would you do if a, a giraffe fell out of the sky and, and hit your left shoulder right now? You know, just, just silly scenarios. And of course, my friends would do a lot of eye rolling, and sometimes they'd entertain my questions, and sometimes they wouldn't. But... I had a do if question pop up when I was preparing for this sermon, because I'm still basically a child at heart. But it was this question, what would you do if one day a year, everything you thought and everything that crossed your mind appeared in like a speech bubble like you see in comic books? And everybody could see it, and everybody could read everything you're thinking all the thoughts you're having, all the thoughts about each other. And you could see them in this little speech bubble, like a comic book. 
How would you feel about that? Would, would that be a would that be a day you'd look forward to every year? We can make it September seven, uh, September second, like today. That's going to be National Reveal Your Thoughts Day. I think there'd be a lot of people calling in sick to work that day. A lot of people with the flu in bed all day. But if you're like me, I, I would not be comfortable with that. I'd, I'd dread that day because you know why? Because we all know there's a lot of bad stuff goes on up here, right? Just quick thoughts that pass through your head, you know, whatever it is, nasty thoughts, just unpleasant thoughts, thoughts of violence, fantasies, all kinds of things pop through our in, in and out of our heads all day, all day long. We wouldn't want that because we know that while we might think and call ourselves good people, and we are in many ways, there's still a lot of bad stuff in us that we need to get out and get sorted out. And the ironic thing is, right, we spend, we spend a lot of time attending to our external appearance and image, don't we? All of us do in one way or another. We're very um, concerned about how people see us, how they perceive us. And, um, you know, people do this through various things. It might be through gaining um, titles and work opportunities. It might be by working out or dieting, putting makeup on. Some go even further and, and go to plastic surgery or Botox. I was thinking this morning how George's lips are looking a little bit fuller than normal. But, uh, but these are, these are multi-million, uh, multi-billion dollar industries, aren't they, that we, we put a lot of money into. But how much time do we devote to, to working on the inside? Do we put the same kind of attention to working on the inside of us? You know, sin always begins with a thought guided by the heart. And in a sense, the heart is where sins are forged. And there is a process to how, how it develops. Uh, James explains it really well in his letter, the letter of James, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. James says this, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, and this is the process right here, after, sin has, uh, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So you see that process? It goes, begins with desires that are not godly, and then we feed these desires, it turns into sin, and then sin leads to death. And with that process, the trick is to not entertain the process. If you want to break free of that, that's where you begin. You say, I'm not entertaining this, because we do have the ability and free will to shut down these thoughts and desires when they appear. Note that the initial desire is not sin itself. So when you have all these kind of thoughts that pop into your head, right, and it can be all kinds of things, can't it? It can be, you know, wanting to tear somebody's head off because they cut you off in the middle of the road. Or perhaps you see a, an attractive man or woman and you start kind of going down that road of, you know, lustful thoughts and all those kind of things. You... That in of itself is not simple. We can't stop those thoughts coming in and out of our heads. But what we can do is we can cut them, cut them off when they start to take root. Jesus is ultimately talking about inner purity, what goes on in our hearts. Do we honor God with our lips? Do we give him lip service? But deep down our hearts are more concerned with traditions. Or do we truly give him true worship? So what are some practicals here? Because I know that we all struggle 
with these thoughts and things going on in our hearts. I know that because I do, and we're all human. And we each have our own areas of weakness, if you like. So, essentially, what you've got to do is you've got to perform daily heart surgery. Each one of us has to become a world-class heart surgeon. And the great news is you don't have to go through eight plus years of training and clinical service to become a world-class heart surgeon. We actually have the best training manual right here. It's called Scripture. So here are some practicals for you that I really want you to take to heart. I'm going to give you a few uh, passages of Scripture that I encourage you, if you're somebody who takes notes, write these Scriptures down. So number one, begin your day with a short examination of your heart and end your day with an examination of your heart. Do a quick review of the day. Ask the Lord, Lord, are there there places where I was not honoring you today? Are there places where I wasn't a good witness for you? Lord, I lift it up to you. I confess. Fill me afresh. It's actually quite similar to uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuits. He had a, a series of spiritual exercises And he had a daily examine in there, which is precisely the same kind of idea. But a great scripture for this to to read and to memorize is the end of Psalm 139. So Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And here's what it says. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a wonderful prayer to begin and end your day with. That's Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. So number one, begin with a daily and end the day with a daily examine of your heart. Number two, understand and know that as believers, the Lord has equipped us to be able to control the desires of our hearts. We're not wild animals who can't control their urges. We have been given that precious gift of free will. We can make a choice. And so another scripture that I want you to claim and pray over yourself is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5. And it says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And listen to this last part. This is so key. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you hear that? We have the power to take captive thoughts that are not godly. Thoughts that are going to take us away from God. We have that power through Jesus. And thirdly, confess regularly. Confess to God and confess to each other. God made us to be in relationship. He's called the church to support one another. If we don't share with one another what the struggles in our own life are and the areas where we we have issues, guess what? You're missing out one of the greatest gifts, one of the most powerful weapons that Jesus left us with, the power of the church and the prayer of the church. I one of the big things for me is being transparent. As your pastor, I'm not one of these people who thinks I'm above everybody else and I can't share any of my issues. No, I share them with trusted people 
so that they can pray for me. And you know what? It keeps you humble. It keeps you humble, but it also fosters the same thing from other people. Don't be a closed book. God sees everything. Let the church in as well so that we can pray for you. So in conclusion, don't just give lip service to God. Don't be a hypocrite, a play actor, giving lip service to God while doing nothing to tend to your own heart. Learn to be a heart surgeon and operate regularly. Be methodical and surgical about examining your heart every day. You have the tools, you have the manual. Now make the incision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed this truth to us that um, it's, it's actually what comes from inside us that is the issue we need to deal with, Lord. And I pray that you would, you would convict us of that in an encouraging way that would say, I love you regardless of what you've done or what is in your heart. But come to me, lay down your load, share your burdens, and let me refresh you. I pray, Lord, that we would be a community that is given to repentance and confession with one another as you want it, Lord. Help us to grow with one another, to be open about our struggles so that we can love and support each other as you've called the church to do. We thank you, Lord. We know you love us and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.